0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Independence Day as our children go off to uh, their Sunday school hour. Um, Well, today we're continuing our Chosen in the Gospel series, our Chosen in the Gospel series, which Bill began just a uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this preaching series is is based on what we have viewed from the chosen uh, television Series, And so for the last couple of Wednesday nights here at Grace Hills Church, we have watched the first four episodes of The Chosen. And uh, for those who may not be familiar with The Chosen, The Chosen is a, a multi-season series uh, television drama that's based on the life of Jesus Christ that portrays Jesus through the eyes of those who met him. And so why are we coming together on Wednesday night to watch a TV show about the life of Christ in our church parking lot that when we're seated in lawn chairs and we're having Cokes and burgers and hot dogs, and this week we're switching it up to deli sandwiches, uh, having snow cones and candy. Why are, we, why are we doing all that? Well, for one, it gives you an opportunity uh, for you to invite your friends to an event that will stir up conversations about who Jesus is. But secondly, we wanted to uh, do a sermon series to go along with uh, what we were seeing uh, from the chosen. And so so the purpose of this sermon series is to explore the gospel accounts as depicted in the chosen television series so that we may be transformed by Christ. Because after all, That's the business Jesus is in. He's in the business of life transformations because encounters with Jesus transforms people's lives. And if you've been wondering why this show about the life of Christ is called The Chosen, there's there's three reasons. Uh, For one, it refers to Jesus being the Son of God. Uh, We can Get this from Luke 9:35 which uh, is the scene of the mount of transfiguration when you read through the gospel of Luke and and right there in that scene Jesus has his three core uh, inner circle of disciples Peter, James and John and they get an opportunity to witness Jesus's glory and in that verse God himself speaks out of a cloud as they're all sitting there and he says about Jesus God says this is my son my chosen one, listen to him. And so the chosen, though, is not only about Jesus being the the son of God, but it's also referring to Jesus's 12 disciples who were part of his earthly ministry, that Jesus called them out. He chose them to be part of his ministry team. And then lastly, then the chosen refers to those who met and who followed Jesus, which would be you and I here today for those who have put their trust in Jesus. And if you haven't seen any of the shows just yet, I just want to do a quick brief recap, a Cliff Notes version of of what we have observed over the last uh, couple weeks watching The Chosen. And in episode one, we saw the life of Mary Magdalene, what her life may have been like, and how Jesus delivered her from seven demons. In episode two, we We saw a show that's largely about the Shabbat and how the Shabbat was very important in the life of first century Jews. And if you didn't pick up on it, what the Shabbat is, is that's the Hebrew word for Sabbath. So that's what the Shabbat is about in episode two. It's the importance of the Sabbath to the Jewish people. And so in episode three, we saw how Jesus loved and taught children. And uh, by the way, if you happen to catch episode three, I would just... Clarify that episode three is not an episode that you're going to find in reading uh, the scriptures. It's not found in the Bible, but what I think it does give, and it helps us with, is it helps give us a picture of Jesus's love for children. It shows Jesus's love for children, and it helps set the scene for later in the Gospels from Matthew 19:14 when he said, "Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them." For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In episode four, the one we saw last on Wednesday night, which is where I want to take us today and focus this message on, is on episode four. We saw Simon in a lot of trouble with his taxes. He was scheming how he could make things right with Rome, his friends, and his family. And eventually he has this come to Jesus moment, right? as Jesus helps him out by by giving him a miraculous catch of fish to pay off his tax debts, and then Jesus calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to come and follow him. Now, this backstory that we watched in episode 4, which depicts the life of the disciples and Peter uh, coming to Christ, is more fictionalized in its nature. It's it's more loosely based on the gospel account that we're going to look at today. And that, I would call that, that's the chosen's version of of how these guys came together to follow Christ. But Jesus' call for these four disciples is is definitely not fiction, right? It it is real life. And so what I want to start with today is kind of just set the record straight from the Bible's account of how these four fishermen decided to come and follow Jesus with their lives. And and really their decision to follow Jesus... uh, happened in stages from the biblical account. And to begin with where they first met Jesus, you actually have to go to the Gospel of John chapter 1, because the background of how the four fishermen met him begins there. John records that it is Andrew, which was Simon Peter's brother, so John records that it is Andrew and most likely John himself who first meet Jesus. Jesus. And John records that he and Andrew were actually originally disciples of John the Baptist. John 1:35 to 42, you could read that later today to see how it all comes together, but I'll briefly narrate it for you. There, the, uh, John the Baptist has these disciples around him, and he points out to Andrew and John, he says, hey, there goes Jesus, the one who is better than I am, whose sandals I'm not not worthy to untie, right? And he says that there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And upon hearing that uh, and seeing Jesus walk by them, those two, Andrew and John, they decide to follow Jesus more out of a curiosity, like who is this guy? Who is this Lamb of God God that John keeps talking about? And they want to see where Jesus is going. They just start, you know, trailing behind him. Now, Jesus knows he's being followed, right? And so he asks them, What are you seeking? You know? And they respond, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus says, Come and you will see, right? So they go hang out with Jesus, and it's during this time where with Jesus where Andrew becomes convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He becomes so excited about his discovery that he then has to go tell his brother Simon. And then after he tells his brother Simon about discovering the Messiah, Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. And this is a common occurrence throughout the Gospels, when you read all the Gospel accounts, uh, with those who have encountered and discovered who Jesus is. They have to go tell others about him. Andrew starts with telling a family member because he brings Simon to Jesus. And then in John 1.42, it tells us what happened when Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. It says right there in John 142, he, being Andrew, brought him, being Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him. He looks at Simon and he says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So let me just give you a a kind of a a translation here of, of what Jesus is saying to Simon. Jesus is saying to Simon here, he's like, hey, I know who you are. I know where you are from. I know who your dad is. I know your identity. I know your life story. But that's not all I know. I know who you will become. I have plans for you, Simon, plans that you cannot possibly fathom. And I'm going to give you a new name, a new identity, a new life. You will be called Rock. I don't know if Peter got excited when he heard that, but um... <laughs> but Jesus knew. Now, this is interesting because when Jesus tells uh, Simon this and says, hey, I'm going to call you Rock, And obviously, he knows all about him in that that instant, that one moment. Jesus knows Peter's weaknesses. He knows his weaknesses, and those weaknesses are portrayed throughout the gospel accounts. We see Peter, and it kind of shows up in the show, right? Peter was impulsive. He's outspoken. He's often weak in his faith when he's being tested. But the key thing here is he was also a strong leader, But Jesus was going to transform his life from being one who had a tendency to be weak. He had a tendency to be weak, but he was going to make him strong. He was going to make him strong for the cause of Christ. And he was going to play a key role in the foundation of Christ's church. So John chapter 1 shows Andrew, John, and Simon how they come together and first meet Jesus. Now, From scholars who attempt to put these gospel stories in chronological order, it appears that the next encounter that these four fishermen had with Jesus was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Because Matthew 4 and Mark 1, they have a parallel account there. In other words, very similar accounts of how Jesus initially calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. Because this is the account where Jesus says, Follow me, guys, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And I, I like to think of this account from, from Mark 4 or Mark 1 and Matthew 4 as the 1.0 version of Jesus calling the fishermen to follow him. And, and that call Jesus proclaims to them is essentially this. You're all going to be getting new jobs, right? Instead of catching fish, for the rest of your life, I've chosen each of you to catch people. Now, I don't know if they totally understood what becoming fishers of men looked like, but they're curious enough to begin to start following him around. Uh, In Mark 1, it then gives us some chronological detail on what happens after this initial calling, after the calling 1.0, where the fishermen begin to follow Jesus. Because after Jesus calls to follow him, they, they go into the synagogue of Capernaum. And there you'll, re, you'll read that Jesus casts a demon out of a person who's attending synagogue that day. That's a Sunday or Saturday you'd never forget, right? Um, then from the synagogue, they go a short distance over to Andrew and Simon's house where Simon's mother-in-law is very, very sick. But Jesus, in his grace, he instantly heals her. So after that, Mark's gospel tells us that these three fishermen, they they go around Galilee helping out with Jesus's ministry as they witness his teaching, his preaching, and his healing. And so that that brings us, that's kind of the the background of how these four guys met Jesus, how it happened in stages. And it begins in the gospel of John, and then you see in Mark and Matthew uh, this other initial calling that Jesus gives to these guys They go around helping him out, and that brings us to our primary text that we want to look at today, which is Luke 5, 1 to 11. Luke 5, 1 to 11. And Luke 5, 1 to 11, I think this is the passage that best captures the story that we watched uh, in episode four of The Chosen. Uh, When we got together and started this sermon series, we wanted to uh, do a sermon that was based on uh, one of the episodes that we had watched. So that's, that's why we're, we're tackling it this way this morning and say, and just kind of look at what is the biblical account of what we just observed? What can we learn from what the Bible teaches about this? And so Luke 5, 1 to 11, I think best captures uh, what we watched in episode 4 on Wednesday night. So uh, what I'm going to do is just read the, the first three verses here and then just kind of unpack them a little bit. There's some key details in here and some of them will pertain to your outline. That uh, for those of you who want to follow along with an outline, so let's review this account of the fisherman's decision to follow Jesus. So, Luke five one to eleven. Follow along with me. I'm just going to read the first three verses here. It says this: On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. All right, there's a few details. Luke is setting the scene, but it it, it seems very simple to us. But there's a a few details uh, in here. Okay. Uh, one, we've, we've got, Jesus. this is actually when he talks about the Luke, or when Luke talks about the Lake of Gennesaret, he's talking about the Sea of Galilee, okay? So Jesus is once again here at the Sea of Galilee, and why does Luke call it the Lake of Gennesaret? Why not just call it the Sea of Galilee? Well, Luke is a doctor, right? And so as most doctors like to do, they want to be precise with what they're writing, right? With what they are telling people. So he wants to be precise in his reporting, so he calls it what it is. It is a lake. And this lake, the Sea of Galilee, is a fresh body of water. It's about 8 miles long and and, uh, 14 miles wide. So it's a pretty good-sized lake. And this name, Lake Gennesaret, the Gennesaret part, comes from the name of a fertile plain that's on the northwest side of the lake. But popularly, it was known as the Sea of Galilee back then to all the locals, and obviously uh, today it is still referred to as the Sea of Galilee. So the scene opens with Jesus standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it says this, says, The crowd is pressing in on him. Now, when you read the gospel, this is not new for Jesus, right? About the crowd pressing in on him. This is not the first time this has happened to him. And when you read uh, the early uh, chapters in the gospel accounts, the crowds are quickly gathering around Jesus for what reason? It's his miracles. It's because he's healing the sick. He's healing people with physical problems. He's casting demons out of people. Okay? But they also gathered around to hear his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And so the recognition of Jesus' authority could be seen in his powerful miracles and his masterful teaching because no one can do what Jesus does And no one can teach like Jesus teaches. But here the crowd, it's pressing in on him to hear what he has to say. And they're also probably hoping, hey, we we really hope Jesus will do some amazing miracles here today as well. Because who doesn't want the full show, right? But the text says they're pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now, when we hear that and read that, I think it's easy for us to casually think, oh, they just wanted to hear Jesus teach from the Bible. But that's not exactly, when we look at uh, the grammar here, exactly what's being communicated. Because this is, a, this is where the value of the Greek comes into play, which is the uh, original language that the New Testament was written in. Uh, the construction of the Greek there uh, puts um, Jesus teaching from the Bible, it puts this as what's called a genitive of source, Meaning that the word that these people came to hear was the word from God. In other words, the source of Jesus' teaching was directly from God. Because Jesus, being God in the flesh, therefore means he speaks the very words of God. Jesus speaks the very words of God. In other words, Jesus is the direct revelation of God which is the first point, I think, on your outline. Jesus is the direct revelation of God. He speaks the very words of God. He is God's revelation to mankind. Jesus said that about himself in John three thirty four, because he said, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So Luke is saying that the source of teaching that the crowd was hearing was not from any mere wise man or wise rabbi. He's saying, no, these people were coming to hear directly from God himself. They were coming to hear from God in the flesh. And Luke says that his topic of teaching for the day was the word. Now, what, what does that even mean? The word, to be more specific, he's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And we get that clue from the verse that's just prior to this scene in, in Luke 4.43, the, the verse right above, where it says, Jesus says this to the people. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Now, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the good news of salvation, and and he's telling the people the truth of what it means and what it looks like to be part of that kingdom. So Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd's pressing in on him to hear teaching from God on the topic of the kingdom of God, and the time of day is it's morning time. And it's, it's morning time because most of the fishermen have come off the lake. That's our clue. Talks about the boats being there, the boats being empty. Uh, and the reason for that is because fishing was done at night. And it says right there, Luke records, there's two boats there. The size of the boats are a good size, about 20 to 30 feet in length. So they could hold several men uh, uh, as well as fishing equipment and whatever fish they caught. And you got a good idea of that from the show on Wednesday night. And as Jesus is teaching, it talks about how there's fishermen right there who are washing their nets. And the, the fishermen would clean up their nets during the day. They'd go sell their catch at the market, and then they would get ready to do it again the next night. And, and fishermen had different size nets uh, that they would use for catching fish. Uh, and the nets that are used here are nets that they would use for deep water fishing at night. So they're cleaning out their deep water fishing nets. Kind of a key detail. And you'll see in in a few moments. As Jesus is teaching the crowd, and as it's pressing in on him, he sees the two boats. He sees, hey, here's a golden opportunity to better, better preach my message so people can hear me. And so he gets a couple, he looks at these couple of fishing boats, but he decides to get into one. Decides to get into one of them. And it says, who's the boat? Simon's boat. One of those is Simon's. Now, here's an interesting thing that I thought of uh, just reading through this. Maybe you thought of it now, looking at it. Why is Simon still fishing? Why is he still fishing? You might be thinking from, from what I said earlier that Simon, Andrew, and, and their fishing buddies, James and John, they'd already decided to follow Jesus. Didn't I just set that up? Well, yeah, they did. They did decide to follow Jesus. But like I said earlier, that. That was the call of Jesus 1.0. And this Luke 5 account, when you get into all the details of examining the different accounts, this seems to be, and I would think, a different account from the one in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. So I would call this Luke 5 account, this is the call of Jesus 2.0. From how scholars put this together, when they put together the gospel accounts in a chronological uh, way, these four fishermen initially decided to follow Jesus as their rabbi, much like Andrew and John had followed John the Baptist, but they hadn't yet given up their jobs in the family fishing business. So they've they've been around Jesus. They've been helping Jesus out. They've been listening to his teaching, but they haven't left their livelihoods yet. They're still fishing for fish. Now, as Jesus has to get some distance from the crowds, to better be able to preach. As he sees these two boats near him, these two empty fishing boats near him, he chooses to get into Simon's boat. To Simon, what may look like a coincidence, a mere happenstance, what may look like the common sense thing for Jesus to do, is not any of those things. Because what Jesus is doing here is about purpose. Everything Jesus does is about purpose. Because Jesus could have just taken the other boat. He could have taken the one not belonging to Simon, but he doesn't. Now, I don't know what Simon's thinking, like when when he saw Jesus choose to get into his boat instead of getting into the other guy's boat. But I can picture Simon in his head thinking to himself, why is Jesus getting in my boat? Why are you doing that? I mean, I'm sure you guys observe things in life and think in your head, why is this happening? You develop answers in your head about what's going on, right? So I I don't know what he's thinking, obviously. I don't know what Simon's thinking when Jesus chooses to get in the boat instead of the other boat. But perhaps he is thinking um, this. Perhaps he's thinking, you know what, Jesus, why are you getting in my boat? I'm really tired. I kind of want to go home. And perhaps in his head, his his answers go something like this. Well, he is my rabbi, right? He is my rabbi. I I do follow him around, listening to him from time to time, right? And he is the one who helped me with my mother-in-law, right? That made the wife happy, right? I mean, he helped Ima, my mother-in-law, get well real quick. And well, based on that, I guess, letting him in my boat to help him teach the crowds. Well, that's the least I can do, Right? I'll I'll be a good guy and and help Jesus out here. So Simon agrees to let Jesus kind of invade his space, right? And he helps Jesus out by letting him into the boat. He, He takes the boat a little out from the land so Jesus can better preach to the crowd. And Jesus continues to teach the people. But when he's done teaching the crowds, he's just getting started with teaching Simon. Let's look at verses four and five verses 4 and 5. Jesus is just getting started with teaching Simon. He says, Luke records this, and when he, being Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, I mean, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay? Okay. So Jesus here, what is going on? Well, he's telling Simon, hey, I'm not done with you yet. I mean, the crowds I might be done with, but I'm not done with you. And here's the next point is Jesus is a man of divine appointments. Jesus is a man of divine appointments here. He will interrupt your life. He will invade your space, but it's done With purpose. It's done for your benefit. Jesus has just finished teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God, but now he wants to give Simon a real life illustration of how this kingdom of God thing is going to work. How does this work? And he wants to give him a real life illustration. So Jesus gives him a command to, to go out deeper into the lake. Interesting. Jesus doesn't tell him what the outcome of this little adventure is going to be, does he? Because this is a call of of trust and a call of obedience. And the command is given to Simon as he's the captain of the fishing boat. But there's also some other unknown fishermen uh, in Peter's boat, actually, because when Jesus says, uh, let down your nets, okay, the, the you're there, again, in the Greek, this is where it's helpful, that your is pluralized, which which means that there's more than just Jesus and Simon in the boat taking this in. Now, the nets that Jesus says they are to let down, they're the same kind of nets that the fishermen had been washing earlier in the morning. So these were the nets used for deep water fishing. And and that grammatical detail says to me that Jesus' command to Simon is essentially... Hey, go do what you did, like when you fished all night. Let's, let's go do that again, okay? Now, to Peter, and probably to you and I, if we were in that situation, you're going, What? Like, I just did that all night long. This is like madness. Why are, you, why are we doing this again? And so it's a command to him that would have made zero sense. Because the best time to fish, he'd already been doing it, it's the night before. And he'd already tried to make the big catch overnight. So at the most opportune time to get the biggest catch, Simon and his crew, they whiff, they strike out. And not every fishing story, as those of you who have fished, have a happy ending, right? You can plan and do everything that you, you're going to do. You can prepare for the best, best opportune time. And man, nothing nothing happens, right? And so this reality of how Simon's night went, along with Uh, the perceived pointlessness of the command, that that I think comes out in verse five, where Simon says, Master, we have toiled all night, and we took nothing. Now, if I'm reading between the lines right here, this is a protest, right? Simon is protesting here, and in effect, he's saying to Jesus, not only have we worked our tails off overnight and caught nothing, but now, Jesus, this idea that you're, you're having me do here you're actually negatively impacting my business, okay? Me and the crew are, are physically uh, drained. You're costing me my time. You're costing me my labor. I mean, this whole project is a waste of our time and labor. It, it hardly seems economical, right? What, what's really the benefit here? Is this really, does this really matter, right? So Simon protests Jesus' command, but in the end, critical detail, I think, in the end, he obeys. He shows a little faith and trust in Jesus to guide them to the right place to catch fish. I mean, who needs sonar equipment when you've got Jesus, right? So um, look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Let's go on to the next scene. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So as soon as they get um, to the part of the lake that Jesus wants to take them in, Jesus gives the instructions. They let down the nets and they instantly take in a large number of fish. So much that it says their nets begin to break. And the crew takes in so much fish that these guys, they need help in bringing in the catch because they don't want to let the catch get away, right? The fact that their nets were beginning to break, that also would not be good for business, right? No fisherman wants to have their nets break and lose out on the prize. So Simon and his crew are so overwhelmed by the size of this catch, they can't handle it. They call for help. And their partners here, James and John, Uh, as they were in business with Simon and Andrew, um, they come and, and help him out, right? Now, when Simon signaled for help, we don't know if these guys are already on the lake. We don't know if they're on the water and they see the signal and they come out. But either way, they come out to help them bring in this catch of a lifetime. And this catch is so big that it not only overwhelms Simon's nets, it also overwhelms his boat and his business partner's boat. So that both boats begin to sink. Now, this is some miracle, right? This is some miracle, and it's, again, all done with purpose. And the purpose here of the miracle, of Jesus's miracles in general, is they reveal his divinity. Jesus's miracle here is a demonstration of his divinity, Point number three on your outline. Jesus' miracle here is a demonstration of his divinity. And the the miracle reflects his divine nature in two ways. One is Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus knew all about Simon when he first met him. He knew Simon's past. He knew Simon's present. And he knew where he was going to take him. He had chosen Simon, Andrew, James, and John for this very moment. They didn't have infinite knowledge of of where the fish were or how they would all get there, but Jesus did. Jesus not only knew where to take them to fish and what the outcome would be, but he also brings a great quantity of fish to them. And that's the second part of Jesus's divinity. The second demonstration of his divinity is that Jesus is all-powerful. I think when these young men saw what had happened, I think it would have recalled what they had learned in their Torah growing up. I think it would have recalled other lessons they'd heard from the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. That would have recalled how the God of Israel provided an abundant amount of quail for his people when they were wandering in the desert. The God who directed the ravens to bring Elijah food and who brought the right-sized fish to come and swallow Jonah. God is in control over nature. He's in control over all things and can direct things, nature, where he wants it to go. And this miracle catch of fish, again, it's a demonstration of Jesus' divinity. It demonstrates that he's all-knowing. It demonstrates that he is all-powerful. And when we have a proper understanding of who God is and who we are, that should bring us to our knees because that's what it did for Simon. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, when he sees this miracle, this miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. At the beginning of verse 8, did you notice Luke's transition in Simon's name here? Did you notice the transition? Here's where Simon begins to becoming the man who Jesus is going to make him to be. A rock for Christ. What causes a transition from Simon to Simon Peter, i.e. Simon the rock? I think it's because Peter is finally beginning to understand who Jesus really is. And even more importantly, who he himself is. He sees Jesus is perfectly holy. He sees there's no imperfection in this man, Because he's God. Peter is is so overwhelmed with the moment and understanding who Jesus is that he comes to a place where he falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Some translations say, go away from me. Like, just leave, right? This is much like Isaiah the prophet's reaction to being in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. In there, in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah gets to see the king, the Lord of hosts. And his reaction in Isaiah 6, 5 is this. He says, woe is me. Like, I'm not worthy of this. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I am not worthy to be in the presence of God. I'm not worthy of God at all. Why would he want to have anything to do with me? He's so holy, he's so unique, he is so set apart. He is so morally pure. And I am unclean. I'm dirty. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. And Peter and Isaiah's response, it's the right one. Their response is the right response. It's one of humility. When we see Jesus for who he really is, kneeling at his feet is the right posture. Kneeling at Jesus' feet, it shows your humility. It, you're, you're saying, hey, I recognize your lordship. And it's revealing a repentant heart. And that's the next point on your outline is knowing Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, leads to repentance. Knowing who Jesus is leads to repentance, Part of Peter's repentant attitude and the awareness of his sinful condition is what, caused, what causes him to cry out, depart from me or go away from me. Peter's sinful condition makes him think, I've got no place in following Jesus. And his words that he says there perhaps show that he's just a little embarrassed, right, about his actions or the thoughts that he's had in his heart. Peter calls himself a sinful man and he realizes That he is not worthy to be in the position that he is in with Jesus. But here's the catch. None of us are. As Jesus said in Luke 5, 31, 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the good news is that recognition of being a, a sinner is where true heart transformation begins. Let's read the last remaining verses, verses 9 to 11. For he, and being Simon, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I would just sum up these remaining verses uh, this way with our final point, point number five is knowing Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, transforms your life. Knowing who Jesus is transforms your life. Jesus transforms your life when you recognize you are a sinner who can only be saved by God's grace. Peter knew he was a sinner, and he experienced God's grace. Jesus is very gracious to Peter here. Did you notice how Jesus reacts to Peter's show of humility? There's no condemnation there. He tells him not to be afraid, and that from now on, he would no longer be catching fish, but catching people. Jesus calls him to leave his profession and pursue the profession that Jesus has chosen for him and his partners. And not only is it amazing that God, in his grace, chooses to save sinners, but that he even chooses us to partner with him in his work. Jesus is not looking for perfect people to follow him. Jesus is not looking for perfect people to work for him. Jesus is looking for self-professed sinners who believe in his divine work that he conquered for them at the cross and the grave and want to follow him with their lives. Following Jesus with your life is an invitation into the mission of God. We were not called to be saved from our sins and then just park it. Because Ephesians 2.10 says this, "For, for we, followers of Jesus, for we are his workmanship. This is something God has done in us, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that sounds like a divine appointment. We have been chosen by God to do good works for him. And part of that good work is the same work he wanted to call those four fishermen into. It's catching people. Interestingly, when you read the Greek, the word for... um, when Jesus says there, from now on you'll be catching men, it's catching alive. And in the, in the Greek of the Old Testament, that catching alive phrase or however they used it there is actually portrayed as rescuing people from danger. Rescuing people from danger. And of course, what's the danger? It's rescuing people from eternal death, right? And Jesus invites All his followers to be a part of the mission of helping to bring people into the kingdom of God. I mentioned earlier that this event in the fisherman's life, that Jesus is going to give him a real life illustration of the kingdom of God. And, And someday we're going to see in heaven all the people from all over the world who were caught for Jesus. Revelation 5, 9 says this about Jesus. It says, for you were slain And by your blood, you ransomed for people, or you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so, knowing who Jesus is transforms your life. Not only does he transform your life in an eternal sense, but he transforms your life now. Peter and his partners, they end up leaving the family business which actually was a good paying career job for people in that day. And it says that they left everything and followed Jesus. And this is what following Jesus is all about. Following Jesus involves giving up something to follow him. It it involves giving up something and leaving something behind. And Jesus may not be asking you to leave your job, but he will ask you to do your job differently following Jesus will cost you something, but he promises that if you trust him, you will gain more than you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you, as it says in Ephesians, that uh, and in some ways they don't even quite understand it, it, but it's amazing that you chose us uh, in Christ just before the world even began. And we're so thankful, Lord, for your commitment to loving people in your grace, to saving them from eternal death. And in just a few moments, we're going to reflect on that uh, by taking communion together. And so we're so thankful, Lord, for this uh, day and this opportunity to come and remember what it means to have true freedom in Jesus. And so thank you, Lord, for uh, your sacrifice at the cross to rescue us from uh, the power of sin and death. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.